Good morning, everybody. It is January 8th, 2021. So congratulations, everybody. We made it out of 2020. We are landing here in 2021. This is our first broadcast of the year for Tales from the Heart, a podcast by the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association with yours truly, Lisa Salberg. And today I am joined by Dr. Martin Merritt of Tufts Medical Center, where we're going to have a discussion about a couple of topics of interest to the HCM community, including um, where we are in COVID at this time. And then we're gonna talk about family history and family screenings. But before we begin officially today, I want to take a moment on the eve of January 9th, which is a day that most people won't think has any particular significance, but it was my sister's birthday. And my sister Lori is the founding concept and principle and driving force behind the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. We lost Lori in 1995, not so much to HCM, but from mismanagement of her HCM. So today on the eve of her birth, I wanna just take a moment to remember her and let you all know what a wonderful sister she was and how her life changed the HCM community forever. And that she will be forever my guiding star, my guiding principle. And when I don't think I can go any further, I feel her hand in the center of my back, pushing me forward to continue the work that we know is so important. So thank you for that moment of uh, reflection on my sister's life. So good morning, Marty. <laughs> good morning, Lisa. Great okay. always to join you and hello to you and all the HM patients and family members and community out there tuning in. Fantastic. So today I wanted to start with um, a question that's a complicated one that's on the minds of many people with HCM. We're still living through a COVID pandemic. Um, what should patients do if they test COVID positive? What's happening with clinical care for HCM in the face of COVID? And can you comment on vaccination? Yeah, so I, I mean, obviously a lot of questions there. Um, some we you know, have reasonably good insight on, others we, we don't, we're limited. But uh, I guess to, to kind of tackle that, um, I'll say the sort of the following. So obviously to start with some basic concepts, I, there's no evidence that the ATM patients are at greater risk of getting COVID itself than, than anybody else. Whether an ATM patient who gets COVID is, is at greater risk of um, a, a bad course or a more complicated medical course with COVID, you know, isn't clear either. Um, but we do look at the disease as a comorbidity. Um, and so the possibility that things could be more complicated medically in an ATM patient who gets COVID is certainly a possibility. Uh, I can tell you that, and I think you maybe, maybe you can comment on this as well, since you're hearing as well from the community you, you, you know, we've seen an increase a little bit in COVID infections in patients with HCM. I can tell you from my end, none of those patients that I'm aware of have had a more complicated course. All of them have done well in the sense of no significant illness from the COVID um, beyond, you know, mild symptoms. So I don't have any evidence myself that I can point to at least to say that the virus is worse in, in an individual HCM patient. Let me ask you, you've been hearing from the community, obviously, as you always do. do you, have you heard anything different on that perspective? So we've had many more people in wave two 
uh, affected. Uh, the first wave, I think everybody's really cautious and uh, locked down quite quickly, but we all got a little com complacent and there's a higher infection rate within the HCM community now. Um, I've had some people get quite sick, but not needing hospitalization, not needing ventilation, not going to that level, but people are, you know, their lungs are affected. It's a little harder on them from what I'm hearing from my non-HCM friends who are COVID positive versus HCM. It's a little bit more of an exacerbation of the shortness of breath, um, which is unsettling, um, but does not seem to be particularly um, uh, problematic or requiring excessive medical attention. Right. Almost all of them have managed from home. One or two of them did a night or two in the hospital, but most of them go home pretty quickly. Um, but it's it's probably a challenge on the heart. Are you recommending post-COVID echoes or how are we assessing the heart post-COVID? Yeah, I mean, there's no clear guidelines on that. I mean, I think what I would say is that it's reasonable to, you know, have a little bit closer follow-up, you know, after or during and after the, you know, COVID infection with your cardiologist. Um, that may include perhaps more frequent echocardiograms than usual. Um, I think some of that depends on the individual situation, you know, symptoms, symptoms resolved, you know, other issues could be going on. There may be the role for more monitoring too, ambulatory monitoring, you know, for those that don't have devices. Um, so there may be a, a, a rationale to do a little bit more testing in closer follow-up but I think it has to be individualized. And that's something you should discuss with your cardiologist if you've had a COVID infection with ATM. I agree. Should patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy receive the COVID vaccine? Yeah, on this one, I think, you know, it, it's absolutely clear. Uh, I mean, they're, they're just, at least it, it, it is to me, as well as a lot of other, I think, experts that HCM patients should get the COVID vaccine. We all should get the COVID vaccine. Um, look, you know, here's the deal. Um, the, 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 the data, the scientific data with the vaccines, and I understand that it's short term and that, you know, it, it's not millions of patients yet, but it's still a lot, um, is excellent with respect to both safety and efficacy. Okay. And I think that in these kind of situations, you ultimately have to weigh risk and benefit, like we always do with all kinds of things that we come up with, you know, medical, medical decisions um, and, and things in life and they're different. Here's one where, to me, with the currently available data that we have, if you're an HCM patient, the, the benefit of the vaccine far outweighs the downside and certainly far outweighs um, the complications or, or implications of getting infected and sick with COVID, okay? So for those reasons, to me, it's very clear, get the vaccine when it is available in your, in your region, which can, will ultimately probably vary um, from state to state, um, but I'm, I'm hoping, and I think it's looking like in the next one to two months, you know, patients with HCM comorbidities will likely start hearing about access to the vaccine. Absolutely. We've had a number of patients who are also in the healthcare field or uh, frontline workers in some other capacity that have already gotten the vaccine. 
and they have a sore arm for 24 to 48 hours. And that's pretty much been the uh, yeah. major complication. A couple of rashes uh, have popped up, but I think I'd have, rather have a little rash than COVID lungs. So yeah. I, I think we need to work on making sure that everybody understands that uh, vaccination is certainly the way to go with anybody with a comorbidity such as HCM. So no, no um, okay. question, absolutely. All right, so we've gotten a couple of comments from that. Um, some people are feeling a bit more confident after hearing that. So thank you very much for that. And we'll make sure that the HCM community keeps coming back to this video to hear that comment over and over and over again. So now I'm gonna pivot the conversation for the next 10, 15 minutes or so. And I, I wanna talk about, uh, by the, way, by the way, you know, just, just before you do that, you know, I, I just, you know, I just received the, the second oh. shot okay. of the Pfizer vaccine an hour before the podcast. Okay. And I did it with my dad, who I brought down to get the second shot with me. It was a father-son activity. Um point though is in all seriousness that I can tell you I wouldn't be saying this I wouldn't be doing this and I wouldn't have had him do this if we had any reservations at all about short or long-term risk associated with the vaccine okay we don't have HCM of course but you know there's, you know, the, the bottom line is we did it. We did it because we feel completely confident in the data. Well, that's a really interesting transition to the next topic because your father just published an article. I will post it up here later about his own personal experience of not hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but is being diagnosed with heart failure. So we all know your dad's work and we, a lot of us know your dad personally. Some of us knew he had this diagnosis to others. It's going to come as new news, but um, we are all mortal and Barry Marin is mortal too. And he has a pre-existing heart condition and you took him to get a COVID vaccine today. Right. So I think that kind of brings home the story a little bit more that if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for us. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if it's good enough for him and he felt that it was safe, then that I think is telling you something out there that um, not that he's, you know, the word of God, but I think that, you know, the, the, those kinds of people like him getting the vaccine and feeling completely comfortable with the idea of getting it um, this early um, is telling you that there's a lot of confidence among scientists enormous amount of confidence. Your father's probably one of the most detail-oriented persons that I know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if he were to look at the data and see anything concerning, I don't think he would have ever agreed. A hundred percent. That's really my point. If there was a, any sort of red flag in the data, a guy like that, and for, for that matter, myself, um, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have done it. Um, but there isn't. There just simply isn't, okay? And we gotta be clear about the truth, which matters more than it ever has, perhaps. And sifting through a lot of noise, you would have to come to that conclusion if you looked 
unbiased at the data that's available on both commercially available vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. And which vaccine did you guys end up getting? We got Pfizer just because it was the one that was initially available first here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, the question within the HCM community is completely clear, within the heart failure community, completely clear. For those of the people that are watching in my classification, post-transplant, it's less clear, but yeah. I will tell you, I have um, done the research. I am going to get the vaccine as soon as I can. Um, I'm also participating in a clinical trial with Johns Hopkins where I will do blood draws to check for antibody levels uh, a week after both of the injections to see if I do have an immune response or not. So the transplant community may not develop the immune response. Right. There's not any negative uh, effect of the, vi uh, the vaccine that they've seen in those who I know who have transplanted and have gotten the vaccine, but we don't know if we get the, you know, the immune response that is necessary for immunity. So we'll see. Um, I'm willing to try and I think it's safe enough for me to try and I don't think there's gonna be any downside to it. So I will do it and I will let everybody know when I do it and we'll see what the data says and whether or not I keep antibodies or not. But the only way I can get back out into the world is if everybody else vaccinates, if the vaccine won't work for somebody with no immune system. So please, please, please vaccinate, wear your mask, social distance, wash your hands, keep it safe. Hopefully in another couple of months, we'll be out of this. Now we've talked about vaccines. We talked about that. I do wanna go back on one other COVID issue. If somebody is planning a trip to come see you, can they be seen during this time where we're limiting healthcare uh, services because of COVID risk? Can they have surgery? Can they get devices? What's going on in January, 2021? Yeah, I, I can speak of course to, 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 to Tufts in Boston where I, where I am. Um, it may be, these, these may be slightly different variations depending on the different regions of, of the US, but in, in, in Tufts in Boston, we are seeing new and follow-up HCM patients including the opportunity for those patients to get all the necessary testing that they need for their visit um, before they see us. Um, and we are doing that either in person uh, or the option is still available, of course, as it probably will be forever, of a telemedicine visit um, if they want. But we prefer, if, if possible, to do in person, particularly for new patients. For follow-ups, it's, it's, it may be a little bit less um, crucial. Um, so we're, we're still full on with that. The only you know, caveat is, uh, two caveats. One is if you're doing a clinic visit, you know, you can really, it's really just supposed to be you. Family members are not supposed to come in. Um, there's some exceptions to that, but in general, we're trying to limit the number of people in the clinic. So family members typically are not allowed into the visit, okay? And two is that for procedures like the invasive septal reduction therapies like surgical myectomy and alcohol septal ablation, you know, those are um, generally considered uh, elective procedures in the sense that they're usually almost always done for symptom burden improvement, which of course is really important, but is, is still an elective procedure for the vast majority of patients. So for that reason, at the moment, um, those are being deferred if possible at least till March, if we can right now. Some exceptions to that, of course, like there always are, there's some you know, medically necessary operations and ablations that have to be done uh, for other certain individual extenuating circumstances. 
But for the vast majority of patients in that situation, we're doing our best to put those off till March at the moment. Okay. Reassessing as we go along. Absolutely. Thank you for the update. Okay, so now let's get back onto our topic of the day, um, which is family screenings. So we tend to talk a lot about anatomy when we do our podcast. We talk about anatomy, we talk about decision-making for care, but I'm going to pivot that to our families. HCM is a genetic disorder. It runs in families. My family has multiple generations affected. Talk about what the guidelines are saying now in terms of screening strategies for young children, adolescents, and adults. Yeah. So, you know, let's start first just with with maybe a couple principles that are important just to understand as they relate to screening. And that's that in in general, we, we consider that the disease develops, the expression, the, the hypertrophy, typically develops during the adolescent period. There's something about puberty, about growth, that you know, so-called turns on these mutations in a way that, that expresses them so that you can identify increased wall thickness. Most of that occurs, we believe, during that you know, eight to 10 year adolescent period. Okay, it's for that reason that the focus for screening family members has been given greatest weight to that adolescent period with respect to frequency of the screening. Okay, so if the choice is to do echocardiograms, so ultrasounds as part of the screening, and we can talk about genetic testing as part of that in a minute, but if you elect to do echo screening, for 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 fam for family members, then we typically start, you know, sometime around the beginning of puberty, and then we do echoes and EKGs, you know, every one to one and a half to two years during puberty, and at the end of that, if the echo is normal, we can space it out less frequently, typically every three to five years until generally midlife, and we do that because sometimes. There can be patients that have what we call delayed onset. So they develop hypertrophy in their late 20s, 30s, and even sometimes into the 40s. That's really uncommon, but can occur. So it's that that's the rationale for extending screening, albeit on a less frequent basis, after puberty. Okay. On the other side of the coin, let me just make one other point. I'll let you jump in. The other point, just real quick, is that you know, there can be some family members that develop HCM or hypertrophy earlier than adolescence, okay? Um, Pre-adolescent pre um, years. And that's uncommon, but can occur. And so the new guidelines have um, addressed that by saying that, you know, it can be reasonable to do echocardiographic screening earlier than puberty if patients want to do that. Okay, and the echo is safe, of course, it's ultrasound. Um, can be complicated sometimes to do that in a really young patient, you know, uh, for those with kids, you know, I think you can relate to the fact of having to do an echo in a, in a one, two or three year old, but, but the bottom line is that the guidelines have left open the opportunity for earlier screening if that's the wishes of the, you know, the, the, the family and patient, okay? So that's, 
sort of where we are. Let me stop there by saying that's kind of where we are, you know, from a 10,000 foot perspective with echo screening. So if I'm a parent and yep. I have a child who's three or four years old yep. and I speak with my cardiologist and say, I'm concerned because mine was found at 12, but who knows if it was there earlier to request an echocardiogram with my cardiologist and have a conversation for my child. That's a reasonable request and conversation. It's, it's, then, reasonable. it's not mandatory, but it's reasonable. It's reasonable. And then you can discuss the frequency of those screenings based exactly. on the family history, based on the child's growth, et cetera. That's an individual discussion. That's right. Case by case. So then the more global screening concepts come in at the onset of puberty, which can be as young as eight or nine, late as 12 or 13, and then continue. What is the frequency that the new guidelines are recommending for the screening of adolescence? Well, it's, 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 I think we said, I have to look exactly at the word. I thought it was, you know, between one and two years, you know, frequency during adolescence. Again, there can be some flexibility there uh, depending on the individual, but it should be no more than two years apart. That's for sure. And it can be less if there's something subtle sure. showing they may want you back in six months rather than a year or two. And you should listen to that guidance. That's why you have to individualize these, these situations, right? They're not all the same. So if there is borderline increase in thickness at age 13 or 14, that may be somebody you definitely see back in a year rather than a year and a half or two years. Okay. Okay. So Rory just asked a question in the Facebook feed um, and I'm going to address it. If you are the parent in this case, we'll just take it from parent perspective and you yep. have a known genetic or known HCM and you've had genetic testing, yep. when do you think parents should consider genetic testing for children? So if you have a parent that, that is, has HCM that's been genetically tested and you have demonstrated with that genetic testing a pathogenic or disease causing mutation, then that sets up the opportunity to test any blood relative, but include, including of course the kids for that specific mutation, okay? To determine if that child or family member has the mutation and therefore could be at risk, much greater chance of, of course, develop, great chance of, increased chance of developing the disease or doesn't have the mutation for which they don't have any increased risk of developing the disease, they're free, okay? Of further testing because they did not inherit the mutation. The, the decision on when to test that child is not set in stone. Um, there's, there's a degree of, 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 of flexibility and in, in, in decision-making there, but it sometimes comes down to how comfortable the parents are on drawing blood on a two-year-old or a three-year-old and whether they prefer to perhaps wait till that child is just a little bit more mature physically and mentally before sticking them for blood to determine the genetic testing results. And by the way, if there's still anxiety about whether the, that child has HCM, you could just start with an echo. And if the echo is normal, then that gives a lot of reassurance that you can wait a little bit of time before genetically testing them. So, 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 so taking into account these factors um, means that it's an individual decision about when to test. So I would also caution speaking with a genetic counselor to understand the implications of genetics sure. uh, on a child. While we're all covered in the United States by the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act since 2008, 
um, there are some considerations you may want to be aware of in terms of possible rating of life insurance policies and long-term care policies or denial of those policies because of a genetic identified, identified uh, mutation. Um, so that's something you wanna to talk to a counselor about. There's a question here and the answer is, it doesn't work that way yet. Um, is there research in how to block the gene during puberty? Um, not, not exactly a topic of conversation for today, but this is an area of research. Um, right now, we don't know how to turn on and off these genes. Uh, do you want to comment anything further on that, Marty? I mean, there's, you know, that was the, um, you know, the, so we do not yet have the ability to manipulate these genes in a way to, to make them inactive or turn them off so that they don't ultimately express HCM, okay? There was, as many on the call or listening may remember, there was a lot of attention a couple of years ago to a scientific publication related to a new technique that used uh, an HCM embryo, I believe it was, um, to manipulate the mutation in a way to make it inactive. Okay. That is a research-based technique at the moment that is still going under a lot of attention and exploration and is not available for clinical use in any way yet. We have a lot of questions about whether that technique will have unknown effects outside of the manipulation of this of the HCM mutation that would be potentially negative or deleterious. So I think we have to wait and see, and I don't know what time frame we'll be talking about. It could be years before we understand better the 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 safety and efficacy of being able to manipulate mutations to turn them off. So it's currently not available. Thank you. So we know that families should be screened at these intervals. Uh, we know that when there are children, it's a little easier for us as parents to bring them to the doctors to get tested. But you've been doing this for a while now. How do you have any tips or suggestions to communicate to siblings and to parents and to cousins and to other family members the importance of family screening? What can we do better to get them in? Yeah, it's a good, great question. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if I have the right, you know, I don't know if I have the, the magic bullet there to necessarily, although what I usually say is, um, you know, honesty and, 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 and shooting from the hip, and, you know, from the, from the gut and the, the core and being transparent as, as possible in these kind of situations, I think is the most effective in being able to convey the importance of screening in other family members because they need to understand you know very clearly in in in, in a obviously honest transparent way what's at stake here okay and that is the principle that it's a genetic disease and that other people could be affected and that you could be affected meaning that family member could have hcm and not have symptoms but still could be at risk for an adverse event perhaps an arrhythmia and so being able to make family members understand that although they may feel fine, that they could still be potentially at risk 
if they had HCM. And so we need to know if you have HCM for that reason. So bringing it home in an honest, straightforward way so they can understand why it's important to screen here, even though, even though they may feel fine, is the key. It's a complicated emotional pathway for some families. Yeah. The HCMA offers a dear family letter that comes from us, not from the individual family member, because sometimes people don't want to hear health information from their child or their sister or their brother. Yeah. They want to see it from a, another source. Um, so we have a letter. It's on our website. You can download that. If you need copies of it, we'll mail them out to whoever you want us to mail it out to. Um, and I'm sure the resource department at, at, at the HCM program at Tufts has similar resources. Um, I know they send out a genetic testing letter that's similar to that. So I would encourage you all to talk to your family members to share this particular podcast with them, that it's important. Um, I know it's scary sometimes, and I know it's emotionally draining, and thereby, you know, we really have to look at all of the aspects of how HCM affects our lives. And this communication is a critical area that patients with HCM need to be aware of. And I hate to use the word, but I think it's our responsibility as the diagnosed to inform the others that they too might be at risk. And that's hard. And we have some support groups that are gonna be dealing with these issues. Um, there are family members who are not gonna do it and you're all gonna to have to find peace with their decisions, but we really want them to get screened because we can make a difference in terms of treatments and protecting people if we know who they are. So I think we need to do that. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about something that brings this a little bit more home for you. You know, your dad has published this new article about his battle with heart failure um, and having a family history now of heart disease in the family, is it changing how you look at things? You know, you're, you're in the game. Have you looked at your own heart history any differently? He wasn't well, expecting that one. Yeah. <laughs> so not really, but that's, but, but it's, but it's fair. So, um, yeah, just so everybody understands. So my dad, who is, you know, spent an entire career, you know, helping to chart the understanding um, of, of, of HCM, um, the most common genetic cardiomyopathy that we have, developed acutely heart failure um, that he was admitted for and required treatment for and continues to be on medication for that was a dilated cardiomyopathy. Okay. So the, the person who has spent his entire career dedicated to furthering the understanding of a disease where the heart is thick developed out of the blue dilated cardiomyopathy, thinning of the muscle with heart failure, meaning retention of fluid and shortness of breath. And um, he wrote about that experience, um, the events leading up to it, including the important issue of denial um, of symptoms that, you know, on the surface, going back retrospectively, clearly were heart failure that he and for that matter, even I missed, you know, because the power of denial is in fact that powerful that um, two expert cardiologists were not able, you know, 
in, in, in a timely way to recognize what was obvious. Perhaps it was because of denial. And so he talks a lot about that. And then of course talks about his experience um, as a patient with cardiomyopathy, having been a physician dedicated to, to the disease you know, in other ways and the, the sort of the, what the impact of that was on him um, and continues to be. Um, and so I think it was, it was a very interesting uh, perspective, you know, to say the least on you know, a physician getting sick with heart failure despite having dedicated his life to trying to prevent that in, in other patients. Um, you know, whether- first one second there on a reflection of the early days of, you know, when your dad wasn't doing so well and he was figuring all of this out. Yeah. Um, I said, well, what, what happened to bring this to your attention? He said, well, I started to get short of breath and they told me I had asthma. Right. And I, I, I actually had to like laugh out loud. I'm like, even you? <laughs> like. We've all been told our shortness of breath is due to some form of asthma. And here's Barry Marin being told your shortness of breath is asthma. And he's like, oh, okay, I guess so. But his, he only took three weeks to get to the, to the bottom of that one after they told him asthma. But right. this shortness of breath is, yeah. it's common. That's right. And it's common. And you can really understand, and what, one thing I learned, you can really understand how you know, these diseases can be misdiagnosed over long periods of time because um, it, it occurred even with us you know, in our own family, that we chalked it up to something that it really wasn't. Um, even but though now, now that he's facing it and the denial is passed and we've moved on to management, how are things going? Better? So, so I think that's a really important point. So he's doing great and he's made an enormous amount of improvement with, with medical therapy. And I think one of the, I think if he was you know, on the call, one of the things he would say is that his own experience with dilated cardiomyopathy getting so much better with current contemporary treatments mimics you know, what he has fought his whole life to bring to HCM, which is contemporary treatments that have also in this disease you know, altered the natural history of the disease in a big way by improving quality of life with current treatments and also longevity. So I think he sees, he sees the good in what's currently available because he's experienced it with his own heart failure. And that is what the message he's tried to bring to HCM as well. I think that's an important one. Yeah. So family screenings don't just affect HCM families. They expect right. it goes much more global than that. Right. So our closing point on family screening um, is about diversity of presentation. So I'd like you to just talk for a moment that if you're encouraging your family members to be screened, and just as an example, you're a patient who's undergone a myectomy. Should your family members be concerned that they too must have a myectomy because you had one. If you're high risk for sudden death, what does that mean for your family member? How do you explain diversity of presentation and risk? Yeah. So first of all, it's true. It, it, it's, it, it, there's an enormous diversity, even within the same families of how the HCM heart looks. So what we call disease expression you know, the thickness, where it's located, whether the patient has obstruction or non-obstruction, that can be incredibly variable, even within the same family, 
that has the same mutation. Okay. And of course, also natural history, you know, can be markedly different. So what can happen to a patient um, is very different, even within the same family. So just because you have a family member with HCM that required a myectomy at age 52 does not mean then that if you have HCM at age 40, you are destined to have a myectomy at age 52. It just in principle doesn't work that way, okay? Why is that? Well, we don't really know, but I would surmise that the explanation has a lot to do with two things. Modifier genes, so these are mutations that are different than the primary mutation that one family member may have that another one doesn't, that could impact the primary mutation in different ways. And two is environment, you know, that the, the, the things that we're all exposed to that may be very different between family members that could impact disease expression in ways that we don't appreciate at the moment. So that's, that's the deal there with, with diversity. So having your family member screen doesn't mean they're going to be a mirror image of you. So right. they shouldn't worry about that. Uh, they could have minimal symptoms, but hypertrophy present and should be followed. And it may not have any clinical consequence for them, but we should have the opportunity to treat them if we need to. Somebody asked a question, how common is dilated cardiomyopathy in an HCM family? Some people will develop a burnt out phase that looks dilated. And some of the genes that cause dilated cardiomyopathy can also cause hypertrophic. So there is a occasionally crossovers in a family. They need to be worked up by physicians who are going to be looking at you and your family very, very specifically. But it's rare. But it's very, very rare, very rare. Um, uh, Evelyn, I don't know what RVA means. Uh, I think you have a hand raised for a question. If you have a question, ask one uh, and we'll try to address it. But Dr. Marin does have to run in just about one minute. So we're gonna kind of wrap up here. So I'm hoping that we'll get your dad on here in the next couple of weeks yeah. to discuss this article a little bit more. Uh, so you can help him set that zoom up. And we'll get that done. And um, any closing closing thoughts for the beginning of 2021? Yeah, get vaccinated. That, that's that's my closing message. And I'm being serious. I mean, that is so, so important. There may be nothing more important, perhaps, in the beginning of 2021 than that. And look, it's a, it's a slow news cycle. So you have plenty of time right now to get it done. So don't let that don't let that be a reason. So you, you really you really have to focus on that. When it becomes available, please, please, please give vaccination the attention. Get vaccinated. Our closing point for January 2021 is get vaccinated. Right. And my my final comment um, is tomorrow is January 9th. It is Lori's birthday, and I encourage you all to commit a random act of kindness in her name. Because she was an incredibly kind person. Great. All right, guys. Great. Lori, thank you so much for starting the year with us. I will talk to you later. And thank you all for joining us on this edition of Tales from the Heart. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors.
Follow us on Twitter at 4hcm.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website, 4hcm.org, and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. Please remember to sign up for the HCM Strong Tour, Big Hearted Warriors Unite. Our virtual tour will begin September 3rd and include dates September 17th, October 8th, October 10th, October 24th, October 29th, November 12th, December 3rd, and December 10th. A few other events will be added. Check the updated registration information at 4hcm.org. Hope to see you at one of our upcoming meetings. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4hcm.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4hcm.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4hcm.org to learn more today. 